And I loved my time in TV and I wouldn't change that for the world. I just knew once I'd been there for a decade, do you know what, I've enjoyed it. But for me, I felt I was just talking about a situation and really I want to get involved in the nitty gritty and change the situation. by City Economic Society. We're a student-led organisation that aims to improve academic, social and career prospects for its members during their time at university. I'm Mika, Society President. And I'm Vincent, Director of Communications. We're excited to introduce Beyond the City as a podcast to keep students in the loop and ahead of the game. We'll be sharing conversations, insights and life advice from a variety of individuals, from political figures and industry leaders to those who are just great at what they do. During the last academic year, we hosted several accomplished speakers, including Nikki Morgan, David Smith, William Hobbs, and Devin Davis, to name just a few of our wonderful guests. Unfortunately, the current global pandemic has placed particular uncertainty on the future for students. Although we have lost our campuses and some of the resources that are so easily accessible there, the internet allows us to go beyond just the weekly readings to stay connected and stay informed. We created this podcast to provide relevant information in a simple, accessible format so students can access the valuable insights of experienced individuals wherever they are. We hope you find it useful. Welcome to episode one of Beyond the City. We are very pleased to have Conservative MP Esther McVeigh with us to talk about universities and their future. Esther has been a Member of Parliament for Tatton since 2017 and has had multiple roles in the government, including Minister of State for Housing and Planning and Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. She is founder of the Blue Collar Conservatives and has her own podcast, Blue Collar Conversations. In addition to her political work, Esther is a successful businesswoman and founder of the charity If Chloe Can, whose goal is to help prepare girls for the challenges of life. Esther is also an alumna of City University of London, where she completed an MA. Thank you for joining us today, Esther. Well, it's wonderful to be with you. Let's start on a much needed positive note. There's a lot of talk about the challenges that students and graduates face at the moment. What do you think are the opportunities that may have arisen from four current university students and recent graduates as a result of the changes that have been caused by this pandemic? Well, I'll tell you what I've noticed about students and graduates at the moment. I think it is their focus on where they want to get to and the time uh, that is available to them to go and get that opportunity. So I'm seeing a real sharp intensity uh, in their uh, desire to get to where they want to go. So they're really looking out for opportunities, but know that time is of the essence. So I think that we'll see this generation of students uh, really seize the moment. I think it will be a defining feature of students at the moment as they catapult themselves forward into sort of career opportunities. I think things that they should definitely take on board, uh, students and, and people of your generation, your USP, is definitely your digital skills. So how can you utilise them? How can you uh, take them forward uh, and use that as part of your armoury? And then I guess finally, uh, and I guess I will share this as something uh, that happened to me as I was leaving university. It was another time in history where there was huge uh, unemployment, lots of un 
uncertainties. Where were you going to get that job? What was going to happen to you? And what that enabled me to do was actually... Um, it allowed me to go for any opportunity I wanted. I never thought I would work in TV. I thought I would be a law graduate and then go straight into the law. But as there were, was so much opportunity in any field, I thought, well, it liberated me in a way. Why not try something completely different? Because if all uh, avenues were closed and all job opportunities were small, well, just give anything a go. So I think if you can unleash that inner uh, adventurer within you, I think that will be positive. So those are the three key things I think students have got now. A seize the moment attitude, skills that they've got unique to their generation, and that ability to try anything out. They're all really good points. I think we often focus on the negatives at the moment, which is why we wanted to focus on something positive. And I think you've just given us a few there. Thank you. This summer, I enrolled onto an online financial markets course delivered by Yale University. The course is 27 hours of recorded lectures and quizzes, and I get a certificate at the end of it, all for just £39. At the time of recording this, it is likely that many UK universities will deliver their teaching solely online this academic year but will charge £9,250 for doing so. You have been campaigning for a refund of tuition fees for this reason. Why do you think the government has not done more to stop universities that are providing a solely online experience for this upcoming year from charging full price to their students? Well, actually, the route for a student um, to get redressed from the university if you are not thinking that it is value for money because universities are now independent of government is to go to the university direct. So go via their complaints procedure and go sort of that way. And that is the way if you're looking for a refund. And then if you don't like the answer that you get, then you do an appeal process and that's to the Office of Independent Adjudication for Higher Education. But there is um, a quality standard. So I think that is one route and that is looking for refunds. Now, I think what you pose, a different point, is going forward, what will the level of tuition be? Well, I think there could be a great levelling out here. There could be a great focus on value for money. Is that really worth it? And I think the power resides in the hands of students there. So will we see lots of students deferring? Will we see students going, it's not worth the full price over £9,000 because what I'm getting is an online service. Why don't I do an open university? So I think the power is with you. I think universities will very much watch what the students are doing and will probably adjust their fees accordingly. But as for somebody like you has managed to do that course uh, for less than £50, get a certificate at the end and get something out of it. Uh, I think we'll see a lot of savvy students doing this selection of actually what is of value to them. And then they might also work with businesses where they're going for a job and say to them, what do you think would be of value to you? And I think the other thing is the apprenticeship levy that businesses are paying for. They're now saying, are we getting value for money for the apprenticeship levy? And how do we utilize that money to look after students we'd, we'd want to uh, support? 
And that is a massive amount of money that we could tap into. So I, I think there'll be a massive shift in the next year. Businesses having a say in what they think is worthwhile. Students having a say in what they think is worthwhile. And uh, universities very much having to adapt. But it doesn't seem to me they're leading the way. It seems to me the student is the one that will lead the way. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, I know that Theresa May uh, commissioned a report that reported last year on it, which started to look at changes in the tuition fees. So maybe this is the event that changes it and really propels it forward. But I really do think that the student now has to say, is this value for money? What am I getting out of it? Is there a job at the end? Or have I got a qualification that is really worth that? Could I be doing it in a faster, cheaper way? Uh, and I am seeing people doing that, particularly those who are thinking about entering university. If you're in your second year, it's a little bit more complicated. You're wanting to finish what you've got. And I, I, I don't see... Uh, the boldness coming from people who are in second year, but I fully understand that, the sort of betwixt and between. Uh, but I definitely see that now coming from those who might be starting or might not now be starting in October. I think you're right. I'd say we're definitely going to see more diversification in the way in which people are pursuing higher education. We're already seeing it through the open university modules and the increasingly popular sponsored degrees as well as apprenticeships and school leaver programmes which have certifications. But you're right, it's ultimately going to be up to the students who will now make that choice as to whether what they're paying for is worth it. I also, uh, having spoken to lots of students, see them balancing up or really questioning what they might not have questioned before. Well, what is it I really want to do in three, four, five years time? Is it that I'm going to take three years at university at a significant cost to figure out where I'm going? Or will I really figure that out before I go to university? And then as you rightly say, is it going to be a course? Is it going to be some form of internship? Is it going to be some form of apprenticeship? I think that luxury of spending three three years figuring out where you're going. Um, and I, I'm, I was guilty of that. Lots of people of my generation were guilty of that. So I'm not saying it's new to you guys, but I'm saying I think that that real focus of where you're going, and that's why I said your generation will be defined by seize the moment um, uh, and that sort of the time is of the essence. Continuing now with the theme of university value, a large part of the student experience is participation in the extracurriculars. For example, being part of societies such as ours, or playing for a university sports team, or even taking part in a drama production. So, my question for you is, were you a part of any societies while at university? Or are there any particular activities you'd recommend students to take advantage of? <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to um, have to come clean here. I didn't really take part in uh, lots of those sort of extracurricular stuff at university. Um, when I went to university, as I was explaining, the, the job prospects weren't so great. I had to think about the cost. Uh, and I wanted to go to London University and I specifically 
specifically chose London University to enjoy London and to see what was happening there because a girl from Liverpool was never going to have the luxury to spend three years in London if I weren't at university. So what I did was I did my studies, uh, but I also got a job in Covent Garden as a waitress in Covent Garden because I wanted to, I don't know, experience theatre and music and the nightlife and what was going on. And that gave me the money to be able to do that because my mum and dad said, Est, all is well and good, but if you want to do those things, you find the money yourself. We will not be funding you to uh, do that. So I always had this value for money and that sort of the, uh, the cost of things uh, well and truly ingrained into me as a child. So I did that. And at the same time, I bought myself a flat in London, a very small flat, but got on the property ladder because um, I thought that was important. It was something that I could invest in. I was working. I also thought I might remain in London after my studies. Um, so I had, I guess I was spinning a couple of plates. I did my studies, but I did a lot of things in London because I did want to go to the capital. Well, that's brilliant. I'm sure any young person today would love to be able to get a foot on the property ladder so early on. (laughs) It was hard work. I'm sure. And it's great to hear that you took advantage of your time in London and really made use of the free time you had as well. Sometimes as students, we forget that we're also building life experience and trying to become adults during our time at university. And it's not simply about getting a job at the end. So you're right, these additional experiences have so much value. And when you said the life experience, um, you're quite right. Interestingly, uh, when I was talking about that journey that we all go on and we don't necessarily know what job we want at the end, I did actually think for a period of time, I want, might want to set up my own bistro, might want to run my own restaurant business. And can I tell you, three years of waitressing taught me one thing. Uh, I had a brilliant time, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I was not going to go into the restaurant business because you really do understand how long the hours are, the difficulties of it, where you can make money, where you can lose money, the complications of staff. So all of that uh, was actually another good experience. And I think we do that in life. It's not always what you want to do and you'll accomplish it. Sometimes it's closing down what you thought you wanted to do and actually what you're not going to do and those avenues that you're not going to pursue. Definitely, I agree. And in a world where we have so much choice, often narrowing down those choices actually helps us to move forward. Back to the topic of degrees. You yourself hold degrees from various universities in quite different fields of study, namely law from Queen Mary University of London, radio journalism from our own City University and corporate governance from Liverpool John Moore University. Could you describe for us your higher education journey and whether you would advise seeking postgraduate study, particularly in the current climate? Well, I have always been interested in the law, Um, whether it was the programmes I watched as a kid, Rumpole of the Bailey, Crown Court. I always wondered, you know, there but for the grace of God, how did somebody's life end like that? And how did they end up being in court? Or how did they end up being in prison? What paths do we take? And some are sort of leaders in a positive direction, and some don't. So I was sort of interested in, I guess, the the victim and helping them and supporting them. So I think that was a key drive. So I'm delighted that I studied law. And I think that is really, really important. um, And I enjoyed that. But one thing I think I have 
learned as I've done different things and moved forward in this life is we're continually learning. We're continually going to have to adapt and change and meet the challenges of the day. And I think that's getting faster and faster and faster in your generation. It will be a never-ending learning. In fact, I think the biggest challenge going forward for young people will be the ability to learn, unlearn, and learn again and be on that never-ending um, uh, research, you know, uh, and, and understanding of the latest technology. So I do think people will do postgraduate courses. Now, will they be formalized? Will it be like I did uh, a master's in corporate governance or will it be more module work? I think it could go smaller, uh, more focused module work. Uh, and that, again, might change the prices so that it won't be thousands and thousands of pounds you might choose to do a term which could cost you know um i don't know a thousand rather than five thousand or, or whatever and i think that to me is also a great opportunity for universities what is it people want how can we teach it rather than thinking of a, a, a phd or a master's yeah i think that will definitely be the case um keeping with the theme of pursuing postgraduate study Currently, a loan for a master's degree from the student loans company is capped at £11,222. This is despite some master's degrees costing up to £45,000 solely for the tuition, a cost that is unaffordable for many. Why are students that are doing a master's degree not financially supported by the government in the same way that undergraduate students are? Because surely the government wants to encourage people to upskill themselves uh, as part of their levelling up agenda without having financial barriers in their way. And I think we've all got to consider this, not just for government, but for the individual as well, is how much debt do you think you can take on board? Can you live and deal with that? Will you pay it back? Now, what you don't want is a situation that you desperately want to do something, but you find you can't, it's limited in one way or another. So you are going to have to cut your cloth accordingly, focus on where you want to go. And I think moving forward, people will try and see, will a business support me to do that master's? Is that master's so important that it would not only help me, it will help somebody else. I think we're all going to have to start uh, balancing that debt up. Is it worth it? Can we value it? Um, or does somebody else want to pay that for me? And I think that's the way forward. And again, universities will have to look, is that value for money? Can we sell that product? Now, if a university can't sell a product because somebody can't get the money to do it, then uh, the university has to relook at that price. But what I certainly wouldn't want to see is a dividing up in society. Those who can afford it can do, and those who can't afford it can't do, when they could be just as bright and intelligent and be able to do that. So that to me would be awful because I am such a strong champion of social mobility and anybody from any background, if they've got the capabilities, should be able to go forward and achieve. So I think this is a picture between businesses, between the universities, and yes, government have a role to play as well and the individual. And I'm hoping, uh, you know, as we said at the beginning, if positives could come out of COVID, this payment and time structure and certification structure has to be one of, I think, the positives we could get out of this pandemic. And is, is there not a way that the government could maybe help through perhaps like a postgraduate ISA, where the individual pays in £25 a month or something? And then when it comes to the point where they want to do the master's or the PhD, 
then the government gives them a bonus in a similar way for lifetime ISA. So it's, it's putting responsibility on the individual, but the government's incentivizing them by helping them with the last hurdle financially. Vincent, I think you're spot on. I think we're going to have to look at all of these different opportunities that are out there. But I personally would start with reducing the price of these courses. What I wouldn't want to see, these courses remaining at that cost and we're figuring out a way how to pay for them. I think we need to look at whether those courses are value for money. So would I be looking going forward that degrees are three years? No, I would not. I would be reducing them down to maybe 18 months and cutting the cost of accordingly, not only of living costs, but obviously of the education costs too. All of it needs to now have a, 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 you know, as my dad would say, sharpen up your pencil and redo the maths on that because it isn't value for money. I agree. Hopefully there will be some change in the future caused by all And Vincent, there will be more and more of this is going online. Of course, it has to be much cheaper. And then you look at the sort of the volume and the scale uh, and how uh, you can uh, multiply up that education for the same cost. So there is economies of scale there as you're selling a course. And therefore, the student must benefit from those economies of scale and must get the fees reduced. I completely agree. Hopefully there is that revolution in education. Well, we've got to fight for it. You, me, Mika, we've got to fight we for do. this because I totally believe this is the way forward. Opening up education to lots of people and bringing the cost right down. Well, hopefully people will listen to this podcast and join us in driving that change. Let's do it. Let's get a team together. Vincent, Mika, you can be at the helm here. I'm going to help you from inside government and let's get a team to say this is what we want to do. That is a challenge to you. I'll be there to support you, but this is a challenge to you, Guy, and everybody at City University. Sounds like a plan. Absolutely. That's great to hear. And I really love the enthusiasm. So <laughs> for anyone listening who's interested in reforming higher education, please do get in touch and share your thoughts with us. So, as we've previously mentioned, despite your training in law, you went on to work in quite different industries, including television presenting, entrepreneurship, and now politics. What advice would you give to young graduates considering careers that differ from their degree? I think I would say life is a journey, and it is about refining your abilities, capabilities, and through life you get to know a little bit more about yourself as well so what is it you really want to do and what really are your strengths and where are your weaknesses and then follow that sort of path and get to your ultimate job and goal and like i said before that luxury of that long journey that I went on and those three years at universities to study law originally might not be open to so many people now. You might find that lots of students coming forward might take a gap year out at maybe 18 to 19 to really focus on where they're going. They won't therefore be paying for education, but they'll really focus on what they're going to do and then they can speed up that journey. But don't be afraid to try something and fail. Don't be afraid to try something you really thought you wanted to do and then you've discovered actually I really don't want to do it uh, at all and I loved my time in TV nearly a decade and I wouldn't change that for the world I just knew once I'd been there for a decade do you know what I've enjoyed it but for me I felt I was just talking about a situation and really I want to get involved in the nitty-gritty and change the situation so 
I'd studied law, I understood that. I then went into media, I understood communications. But really, I then understood I needed to be in politics to be able to change what was going on, bring in new laws, uh, lobby government, represent, uh, I don't know, charities, organisations, individuals. But I didn't come from a background where I had that kind of support. I mean, I started off uh, as a Bernardo's child in a foster home. I eventually came back to my mum and dad when I was about four and a half. They were very young. They started off very poor in life. So they couldn't really give me too much support. But the support they gave me was love was understanding they worked incredibly hard they then tried to give me things they didn't have so you know my journey was terrific and everybody's journey will be different but turn those failures into experiences in fact I don't say it's a failure I say it's an experience and if it can make you more humble if it can make you more appreciative if it can make you want to help other people um, then all well and good you mentioned strengths and weaknesses do you think there should be more emphasis on soft skills that we learn outside of lecture halls and their relevance as we move from career to career in our lifetime? Yes, I do. And it was for that reason, or at least that was one of the reasons I set up my charity, If Chloe Can, because those soft skills were about um, confidence, were about resilience, were about writing CVs, working in teams, figuring out if you're a leader, having um, role models, looking at about how the people achieved, what did, did they do? How did they manage to uh, do it? What exam results did they need? What uh, extra work experience had they done? So really it was about sharing all that knowledge from other people, real life experiences to enable other people to succeed. So yes, those soft skills and I, soft skill, skills, sometimes that terminology uh, demeans or diminishes their importance. They're absolutely, they're finishing off skills. They're not soft skills, they're vital skills. Lots of people will say to me, I want somebody with the right attitude. And sometimes the attitude is worth slightly more than the grade they've achieved. So I always say that positivity, giving things a go, um, and just you know, up for trying things, really important. Definitely. On the topic of role models, it's great to see your commitment to supporting girls and women through your charity, If Chloe Can. Its website states that you founded the charity due to a historically limited access to appropriate role models for young girls. So just in case there's anyone out there looking for inspiration, I'd like to ask who are your top three role models? Okay, as I was growing up, my top three was a lady who I'd never met, but I read about her in a book, and she actually went to uh, my school, and her name was Rose Heelbron, and she was the very first female QC. Um, she got a first, I think she was the first to get um, a first uh, at university, and off she went and became a QC. She actually came from a poor background herself. Her parents had... Uh, uh, immigrated to uh, the UK. They were immigrants. They'd landed in Liverpool. Uh, they didn't have much money and they opened a little B&B and she'd help make the beds for families who were staying there at the same time she'd study. So she came from absolutely 
nowhere, as it were, to somewhere. And that somewhere was where she wanted to end up. And I think that is such an impressive story. Uh, through hard work and endeavour, she managed to achieve. And at the time, uh, women weren't QCs, they weren't barristers. Uh, it was really difficult for her to get a job at all. In fact, one of her cases, she was going to defend somebody who was up for murder and was going to be uh, hung. And he looked at who had been chosen to represent him. And he said, you know what? I knew my chances weren't looking good, but having seen who I've now got representing me, my chances are even worse. And that's what he said when he first met her. And then at the end of the hearing, he said, I want to apologize for what I said. I couldn't have had a better person to have represented me, male or female. You were like a tiger fighting for your cub. I could not have had a better barrister. And I thought, wow, that brought sort of tears to my eyes that even he recognized it didn't matter your class, it didn't matter your color, it didn't matter whether you were man or woman. If you are good at what you do, you are good at what you do. And I think that was just a fabulous story. So Rose Heilbron is one of my role models. Another one was my ballet teacher. She left Australia after the Second World War. Uh, she came over as a single mom with two kids, uh, didn't really have anything to her name, and she set up a little school to teach people dance and to teach people uh, drama. And I just thought, what an inspirational woman to have come through all that, start again in a different country, look to want to help other young children and bring your own up. So that's my ballet teacher. Um, and Janet Street Porter, who as a lady who gave me a job in TV, what a pioneering lady she was in TV, outspoken, really at the forefront of what she did. So those are three. I have others now who are my best friends in life. Debbie Moore, the first woman to set up a public limited company, Pineapple. Lucinda Ellery, who helps with people who've lost their hair through accident or ill and um, so I've got so many um, friends who are just sort of there and trying to do their bit in the world which is really important. Thank you for sharing those stories they all sound like brilliant women and hopefully will inspire some of the people listening and as you've said it's often people around us our friends our family who are those role models for us in everyday life as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Parents, cousins, teachers, it could be anybody who, and I think the word is encouragement, anybody who allows you to think a little bit bigger, put your dreams into reality and encourages you to go forward. I think you've got to find that soft space which will allow you to breathe and grow and think about things outside the box and just not try and contain your enthusiasm. I completely agree. It's not necessarily the teachers that get you the A's and A stars that you remember, but it is those people that encourage you after both success and failures that really make a difference. Absolutely, absolutely. And um you know, we'll all find one of those in life. You're not going to have maybe hundreds and hundreds, but you will find them. And I think you should also look out for them as well. Don't pass anybody by who's, who's maybe trying to help you or encourage you. In fact, the people who became the most 
informative in my life were probably some of the strictest people who were always <laughs> trying to set disciplines and I don't know rules and maybe I was one of those people who was always trying to push boundaries and break them um, but I always think you know creativity can also come out of discipline so um, yeah find, find those people wherever they are they'll sharpen you up definitely um, and finally I'm 20 years old and Mika is 21 if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to yourself when you were our age? I think I was always an adventurer. And so I always gave things a go. And I was always trying to do things um, in different ways, probably because some of the straightforward opportunities weren't there for me. So I was forever trying to um, go through a different door, dig a different sort of hole uh, to, um, to sort of get through to the other side. But I think confidence is a big issue. And although I was adventurous, I don't think my confidence was as rounded as I would have liked it to have been. And the reason I say confidence to people who were your age i think social media which i didn't have growing up really knocks people's confidence we would have had people telling us or saying to us oh you can't do don't give it a go people like you from this background can't do that who do you think you are don't bother but i'd only have that for so many hours a day and then i could walk away and say well who cares what you think i'm going to give it a go anyway no social media is there 24 7. social media um seems to be eroding a generation of young people's confidence so i'd say switch that off turn away focus on yourself make sure you have some quiet time and knock about with really good friends who encourage you uh, into doing positive things so i would say limit a little bit of that social media time switch it off and pursue what you want to do and i think that's important and funny enough i know at the beginning you talked about my podcast blue collar conversations and that was for working people at the moment going through COVID-19 to share their experiences of what was happening to them, their business, what was happening to their livelihood, what was happening to their children's education. And talking this through and reaching out and giving people suggestions, ideas and putting your arm around people is what's going to be key in life, that sort of human contact love and care um, and we have to remember that you can do loads and loads and loads online and that's great but you do need that human empathy that human support and that human love to carry you that next bit of the journey i completely agree i think that's great advice for not only us as students but for everyone really especially during this time so I think that concludes our first episode. Thank you for joining us today, Esther. We've really appreciated it. We've got lots of brilliant insights into that and uh, the future of universities and where education may go. Thanks again for joining us, Esther. And thank you all for listening to the very first episode of Beyond the City. You can find podcast episodes and more on our society's website. Sign up to our newsletter to be the first to know about future episodes and special events at www.cityeconsoc.com.